This is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. And today we're talking about Stellaris, developed by Paradox Development Studio and published by Paradox Interactive in May of 2016. We're actually playing this game very close to its fifth anniversary, and it just so happens the weekend before we recorded this, there was a free weekend for this game. So hopefully we'll get some uh, people that are as newbie as I am to this year's. <laughs> Someone who was perhaps not a newbie to the game it was me. Um, I played this game very soon after it came out, and me and my brothers have been playing this game on and off for a, a few years now, quite a few years. And before yeah. that, I've played a lot of other Paradox interactive games. They do a lot of these grand strategy games like Europa Universalis, Hearts of Iron, uh, Victoria, Crusader Kings was another big release this last year. Uh, so, so they are they have a very interesting kind of way they structure their games and their systems, and especially their DLC. Yeah, I almost feel like Paradox is like a language of game that you have to learn how to speak. Mm. And then Mm -hmm. once you do, like a whole world is opened up to you. And I have not mastered that language yet. I'm at like, you know, 200 level if we're talking about a language class. (laughs) Whereas I feel like you you are probably fluent. A little more fluent. Yeah, you get to see how the systems interact with each other. We started playing this game for the podcast because Brian saw that this game had the base game and a bunch of the DLCs on sale. Uh, So he Mm -hmm. picked that up. I picked it up, too, because I only played the base game up until uh, this go around. And we went loose on that. Yeah, it was it was really fun. Um, You know, we actually also played a bit of multiplayer, um, which I think this game actually does really well in multiplayer. um, Contrary to most real time strategies, games I've tried to play Mm -hmm. um, multiplayer. Um, It's. It's really interesting. You know, I was, I'd was i heard so much about this game over the years, and, you know, I finally bit the bullet, and I'm glad you jumped back in uh, with me because, one, uh, it helped to have sort of a Sherpa, that first game that we tried to play. It helped <laughs> clarify a few things for me. There was a lot I was remembering on that first game, too. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that was that was also nice to sort of be learning together. And I guess the second thing I was going to say is that this game has changed so much in the interim between when you played a lot of it and now that um, it was also nice to sort of see how it's changed over time. And ironically, it as- it actually also changed quite a bit during the course of time we played it. Uh, we we happened to be playing as version 3.0 um, launched, which is interesting. It was called the Dick Update, which uh, I found hilarious. Of course, named after <laughs> Philip K. Dick. Of course. Uh, not because, <laughs> yeah, not because it made all the NPCs suddenly start acting like dicks, which is what we initially thought it was about. <laughs> now, the, uh, Paradox, their DLC system is very interesting. When they release an expansion uh, DLC for a game, they also release a hefty chunk of gameplay changes for everyone else, too. So even mm-hmm. if you don't get the DLC, you get a kind of a flavor of it. I kind of think of it as a teaser for the new abilities and uh, things that the DLC unlocks. It's really interesting because uh, the big uh, DLC that just released is called Nemesis, allowing you to sort of play as endgame, large calamities, uh, things like that. But they also, as they released that, allowed you to um, have a brand new system for Intel and espionage. They reworked how your first contact works with other civilizations. And Oh, they made it a whole new system, yeah. Yeah, it, it, there was a ton of interesting developments that basically between one game that I played with you and the next, we, we were like, wow, this is actually quite a bit different. And <laughs> it was interesting. Uh, even, 
you know, it, it sort of maybe a little bit confused me even further as a person who just learned the game and suddenly had to learn it again. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's kind of how it goes with this. And uh, if you haven't detected this yet, I feel like, for me at least, I'm coming at this very much as a, a tourist. So, you know, take whatever I say as a grain of salt. I'll let Josh give his own caveats for his opinions. And My opinions are objectively correct. <laughs> certainly certainly <laughs> now this game uh this stellaris like all paradox games is very systems dense uh there are just layers on layers of things to figure out things to grok so it does take some time to get your feet wet and kind of just learn to read what's going on yeah, I, I would agree with that. And like like we said, this is developed by Paradox. And Josh, as you mentioned up top, they're famous for things like Crusader Kings, Europa Universalis. You know, I think um, Crusader Kings 2 was sort of a breakout hit. And Crusader Kings 3, which released last year in 2020, was sort of a world beater, um, you know, selling quite a few copies off the jump. And I know I played a little bit of it um, on uh, Xbox Game Pass for Windows, which uh, I enjoyed my time with it. Again, I'm still sort of learning these games. So now that I'm maybe a little more fluent, I might even go back. But let's return to the game at hand. Stellaris. Uh, What's this game all about? Stellaris is your, um, I would say, almost prototypical 4X game in space, which would be um, explore... Hang on a second. (laughs) I just wrote an article on this, too. My goodness. I know this. Explore, expand, exploit, and exterminate. There we go. There we go. You are creating a galactic civilization as you explore new planets. You start to colonize them, start to get their resources out there. You run across other uh, civilizations and you compete with them or you become friends with them or whatever you have. Um, And then eventually you might exterminate them if they're getting in the way. Right. Um, it's, you know, you've, you've probably, I think the most popular of these in computer game parlance is probably Civilization, Sid Meier's Civilization series. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of the, the lens through which I come at this because I played every Civilization game since 2. And this is nothing like it. <laughs> uh, from Civilization, yes, maybe. Uh, but I mean, 4X games have a huge history. I mean, like... um. Maybe one of the first ones was Masters, Master of Orion back in the 90s. You know, d- definitely a big space thing. One of the things I played a lot was a game called Galactic Civilizations 2, which kind of, uh, I think, colored my view of this game as well, especially near the beginning. I, like, I've been playing this game for years, and I feel, especially towards the beginning of this game when it first came out, it was taking some more ideas from that game. Um, which it has moved on in its own direction since then. Like, I feel these games are more distinct now than they were back then. Yeah, I, I, uh, you know, I can't really comment on on this game's evolution since I'm just coming to it with this current lens, but I'll I'll agree with you uh, in what I've seen, at least. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I played, I guess, from a space-based 4X um, most, I guess I played a little bit of Alpha Centauri, which is the Sid Meier's space version. And then I've also played, um, Sins of a Solar Empire, which also mm. to me, uh, smacks of this game a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but this game definitely has a lot going on for it. I, I remember when we first started up our multiplayer Sherpa session, 
um, we probably spent half an hour just on creating a civilization. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And <laughs> I had no idea what I was looking at. But the civilization creation system in this game is great. They give you a lot of preloaded options. And, you know, these are much more interesting options than you might find, you know, your blue aliens versus your red aliens. No, no, no. You are able to uh, take the helm of um, sentient AIs with shared gestalt consciousnesses. You're able to uh, take the... Uh, uh, the helm of basically rock-based uh, people. If you have the correct DLC, you're able to take the the form of you know communist birds, as I ended up choosing. Uh, <laughs> Gigantic mega corporations. You can be like the evil McDonald's that takes over the universe. No, I yep. think uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking now, like coming at this game from your experience, you hadn't played anything, and your first intro to the game, your first like uh, impression of the game is through this civilization creator there are so many different options you know it kind of must have given you like this idea of how deep the game could be or just the different like uh all the different origin stories you can choose for your home world like uh nuclear holocaust or machines took over everything or all kinds of different things and it kind of just hints at what you see later on in the game it it certainly hints at a gigantic play space that, you know, I've only barely managed to uh, scratch the surface of with my, you know, two or three playthroughs. And and I don't mean finishing games. I mean, starting games, eventually realizing I'm fucked and then starting over again. (laughs) Um, But it's, um, it's interesting because I like the way that they frame it. Like you said, Josh, every civilization has an origin. They have values that drive their civilization. They have ethics uh, that stem from those values and sort of dictate what types of um, directions they go in terms of tech and, and other things. And then finally, uh, as basically window dressing, you get to choose what they look like. <laughs> <laughs> and sound like too. That was another new thing. Your AI tutorial advisor could also be like a communist Russian. <laughs> That's right. I had I had birds that spoke with a Russian accent because they had the, the communist <laughs> voice box, <laughs> which is funny. Good bit of flavor, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it it is interesting that um, you know there's so many different things that you can have in here and um like i said they all completely color the way you're going to experience the game and i believe they also dictate some of the events that you'll experience once the game starts yeah especially some of the different origins you can get um i remember playing through a couple of different ones and how even like the origins have changed over time that was a introduction to the game that came later on in some ways, me playing it over again, it's like looking at a palimp set. I'm seeing the game as it is now, but I'm also seeing the games it has been before. Yeah, you can st- still see some of the vestigial mechanics that were there and maybe abandoned or completely reworked or you know have a completely different meaning now. But you know, we mentioned that um, what you choose in that civilization creation engine or you know whatever pre-select you choose will dictate what you see in the game. But maybe we we should talk about what that actually looks like. So mm-hmm. to me, the interesting thing about how this game works compared to other 4Xs that I've played is that there are very specific sort of delineations between the early game, the mid game, and the end game. And these are actually delineations you can choose during the game options. If you want the mid game to start earlier, then you can set that up to do so. Yeah, and that that was fascinating to me, but maybe we just talk about them in order because they all seem to play quite a bit differently to me. Uh, and 
the first one, uh, the early game, obviously, uh, relies most on exploration to me. This mm-hmm. is the most 4X-y of the, uh, of the <laughs> or at least, you know, the, the explore and expand portion of 4X uh, mm-hmm. are in this early game. And it, it really does play almost completely differently than by the time you reach early game. You know, you're learning about your immediate solar system, then you're learning about the star lanes that uh, connect you to your surrounding solar systems. And uh, a big event is your first encounter with one other civilization. Mm-hmm. Uh, not even necessarily another civilization. You could run across the docile space whales and everyone's like, oh my gosh, aliens, things yeah. are going crazy. <laughs> Yeah, they make a big deal about first contact, which, you know, rightly you should. And I do want to point out that it's hilarious that we're doing this podcast during the time that the United States is having a collective freakout, or at least the government is, over uh, UFOs that we've apparently been seeing for the past five years in our skies. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? It could have been, we'll call this a timely podcast. Wait, did you say the last five years? Like, as long as this game has been out? Ooh connection conspiracy (laughs) no i mean files theme (laughs) (laughs) the early game for me is pound for pound where this game is the best it punches uh i'd say above its weight but uh this is you know trip this is as heavy as it gets yeah Yeah. (laughs) Uh, definitely a very uh successful studio uh paradoxes but the early game that exploration uh you find a lot of these events um, while your science vessel is going around these anomalies that you investigate that add all these little touches of story flavor to what's uh, would otherwise just be like, oh, it's a planet. No, it's a planet that has like very specific geological formations on it. Or like we discovered this moon where some alien civilization, some ancient civilization has used the laser to carve an epic poem into and you get all these fun little story things um which just makes it a real blast to go through especially the first few times you go through there's a lot of stories but eventually you do start seeing repeats yep yeah i would i would agree with that i i only saw like one or two repeats while i I played it but i'd imagine that uh, that means i'm at the point where i'm going to start seeing a lot more but yeah to me i absolutely agree with you josh this is the point in the game where they're sowing the seeds of everything that's going to be coming down the line in the uh, later mid game and this is where the possibility space seems the biggest and Mm -hmm. uh from the 4x games that i've played this is also pound for pound uh probably the best like expand and explore phase uh Mm -hmm. that i've ever seen like i love this i could just play the first part of this game forever before everything gets way too complicated uh, (laughs) i i I love seeing like if they just had a a generator that could give me infinite interesting anomalies that i encounter and um you know uh artifacts that i'm trying to uncover excavation sites i would probably just play that and i'm sure there's a version of this game where i just, just Uh, flip a bunch of sliders in a certain direction and i get that um (laughs) you know um i I like to experience the entirety of a a game when i play it so i'm gonna you know play play more vanilla but yeah Mm -hmm. this this is a really cool and interesting uh part of the game and i i'd say it's probably one of my most enjoyed as well you know what uh i think next time i play this game and i'm surprised i haven't thought of this before but I bet there's a ton of mods that just add mm. anomaly after anomaly for you. So That's you don't get, point. I mean, this game's a well modded game and that would be like the easiest, the, the first thing I would reach for. I'm not a very like 
mod heavy gamer by any point. I, I think when we played Morrowind earlier this year, you guys were all like pimping out your UI and all that. And I was, uh, I'm like, well, maybe I'll make the signs more realistic. Signposts. I think I could do that. You just want to pimp my galaxy, give it lots of nice new <laughs> anomalies and, and things like that. No, I, uh, I'm i with you on that. Like if, if there was a mod pack that added a bunch of really nice, well-balanced anomalies, and there's nothing nothing saying there isn't this already out there, uh, we just haven't looked. But, <laughs> Very uh, true. Because, you know, we uh, do really in-depth research for this podcast and never leave any stone unturned. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, um, I agree with you on that. That's definitely a, a modding avenue that I'd be interested in checking out as well. One thing I want to mention, too, while we're talking about the early game is just another example of how much this game has changed. Um, I don't know if you ever got to the point where you researched jump drives in this game. Yeah, I did. Okay, so in the current version of the game, when you are exploring new planets, going around to new systems, uh, the galaxy looks like a graph of star systems and you got like this galaxy is connected to three other galaxies and you travel along one of those edges you get to this galaxy is connected to another two or three galaxies so it forms this giant graph that you explore around um eventually you get this technology called the jump drive which lets you skip these edges you can just go from um you can pretty much go from any planet to any planet. Uh, I just remember early on in the game, uh, the different civilizations like the humans or the birds or what have you, or uh, they would each have their own different hyperspace maneuverability. Not not each of them having a unique one, but I think there were three different categories. There were like the... Um, the star lanes like there are right now, which would be the quickest way. But then you'd also have civilizations who started off with jump drives so they could mm. just go wherever. And that was a kind of interesting thing when you're fighting a enemy that um, has the jump drives and can just go from place to place because combat in this game is now all about choke points and trying to fight the yep. decisive battle. But back then it was a little more about maneuver and trying to hunt down and catch up with the enemy fleet uh in one way i'm glad they got it taken off because it was a pain in the ass to try to hunt down those jump drive fleets yeah i i would agree and i i think that sort of asymmetry is one of one of the things that makes this game interesting but it can also make it frustrating uh asymmetry in terms of like what civilizations start off with what generally speaking it's pretty balanced but uh as you mentioned that you know logistics in terms of your ability to navigate your empire as it consists of the various systems is one of the major things that you're going to have to contend with especially militarily in this game and as you mentioned early on it's basically expand 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 make sure that you can sort of uh, find a choke point and fortify it with a star base and then camp out there with a, a fleet to make sure that no one encroaches on your your stuff and at least when you're at the default AI level of somewhat dim, then that is a very good strategy. Yes, I am. Um, I am somewhat dim myself, and so I always <laughs> try to play against similarly skilled AIs. <laughs> With these civilizations all starting out, the player empires or the kind of player controllable empires, 
they all start off pretty balanced. Like everyone starts off with a single system, and they also start off a little sparse. Like they, you don't really have neighbors right next to you starting off. Uh, you'll discover them maybe pretty quickly, but everybody has a little bit of room to explore and grow. Yeah, and it's meant, worth mentioning that in this early stage, you start off with one planet in your your initial system, and it's a pretty well appointed planet. You know, it's it's amenable to your civilization. Obviously, they wouldn't have gotten to where they are without it. And usually, there's one uh, at a close jump that you can get to to expand to another world. You know, having your first off planet colony as it is. Yeah, a and, world um, type that's like compatible. Like if you have a de- bunch of desert living birds, then they won't find like an Arctic ice mm-hmm. world they can't do much with. Exactly. So th- that is helpful, and it, relatively speaking, they try and balance that. Uh, some some of the civilizations receive bonuses where they have you know more or less depending on the difficulty you're at and the options you've chosen. But you know, expanding and building up your planet and the nearby systems that you're able to expand to is a major part of this uh, this early game flow as well. After that early game, you get to surprise, spoiler alert, the mid-game. <laughs> yeah, and to me, this is most characterized by the formation of the galactic community, right? You found enough civilizations, and they found each other. You know, no one is off the grid, so to speak. And so um, everyone comes together and forms, uh, I guess, a galactic council, uh, a senate, some sort of basically overall body of the galaxy and you know every civilization and even minor um uh, group is represented in there and basically like their total civ power is basically translated into their voting power within that galactic community i thought one of the interesting things about the galactic community uh from a mechanics perspective was that that civ power that gets translated can be altered by the galactic uh, community when you go to the galactic senate like you can vote on resolutions that make like your research strength worth extra or you can Mm -hmm. make your military strength worth less in terms of your total voting power in the senate right and not not only that but then you can use that voting power that you try and drive the the efficacy of towards things that penalize or reward uh, certain actions within empires. So if you're like the super technocrat, so to speak, but maybe aren't super powerful militarily, um, you can penalize other empires with a resolution to increase uh, upkeep on military vessels or reward uh civilizations for increased output from a technology or science perspective Mm -hmm. now i actually never messed around too much with the galactic senate like i just kind of voted on things that came my way but uh, i assume are you able to like propose your own measures there once you have enough power you know what i think so but i've never actually tried to do that either i always just like lined up all my votes on things that were in my best interest and then uh, clicked away because i had other things to do <laughs> <laughs> no, i gotcha I got this you. is definitely also the part of the game where like the notification system went berserk for me because there was just way too many coming in all the time for me to keep up with huh. and we'll talk about how the situation log and the notification system works maybe a little later but um suffice it to say there's a lot going on during this part and um, to me, I think this is the part of the game that is trying to be Crusader Kings the most. Uh, explain. Yeah, so, you know, if I'm thinking about this, the, the galactic uh, community is basically like 
Stellaris's way of trying to be the dip, the diplomacy system in Crusader Kings two or three, something like that, right? You have established kingdoms; uh, they have their known territories. They're trying to basically uh, jockey for power or influence amongst each other. And the Galactic Senate is the place where that plays out. And this mid game is where all that information is taking place, right? Everyone knows everyone else exists. It sort of functions a little bit more like the. The, the KC, or at least the part of KC, or sorry, CK, uh, Crusader Kings that I have played. And mm-hmm. that's not to say I've played a ton of Crusader Kings, but I think this part of the game is the most like it because it focuses most on diplomacy and ideally the least on, um, you know, border skirmishes or, um, well, not border skirmishes. There's a lot of border skirmishes <laughs> in this part of the game, actually, but less on like grand exterminations and war uh, so much. No, I hear you. I also feel that diplomacy in this game was weaker than in other Paradox games. Like, um, if you, you've you played Total War games before, I'm sure, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. the diplomacy in this game was kind of at a level with the diplomacy in those games. Like, it was a very blunt tool. Uh, you could make alliances and get people to join you in the wars or maybe get them to give you some resources, but compared to Crusader Kings, compared to Europa Universalis, it didn't have the same interesting number of things you could do um, in terms of diplomacy and interacting with other countries, with other civilizations. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think that's partially a function of everyone starting off balanced, right? Like there's yeah. no Bal- there's no Balkans in this game, right? Like in, in EU or in... Um, Crusader Kings, there's all these tiny little, you know, maybe something like the Holy Roman Empire is, you know, broken up into all these tiny little kingdoms that all have these interesting squabbles and politics and maybe some riots to the top and others get taken over, fall by the wayside. And in this game, it's just all a little more static because there's a frozen middle and everyone's part of it. Everyone's part of it. And like you said, they they all start off balanced. They all, all start off from the same. It's not like you start off as France and you can kind of maybe steamroll around any individual country nearby you. And it's not like you start off as Switzerland or a country right by France uh, that can possibly steamroll everything around you. So you don't have to do the diplomatic dance that makes those games interesting. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's not as much nuance there. There are like steamroller esque civilizations in this game in terms of the sleeping or fallen empires and there are um you know balkanized uh civilizations such as like the trade federations that are just sort of nomad civilizations for lack of a better word or the barbarians yeah yeah they just don't come into play as much right like they don't have as strong of an agenda and they don't have as much room to maneuver because the main space in which they would be operating is already taken up by all of the balanced players in the middle which you know control maybe by volume 80 to 90 percent of everything that's going on the map mm-hmm. um so that that i agree you know just gives the game a little less room to maneuver on the diplomatic front um but when i guess an interesting thing that can start to allow this type of behavior to occur is federations which it sounds like you never really played with much but i like i initially joined a federation and uh basically i was part of the loser federation you know all of the people who weren't the most powerful two civilizations on the map joined the loser federation and tried to gang <laughs> up on them uh-huh. and it actually it actually worked out pretty well because you know i eventually rose to the top of the loser federation and i was able to um, 
you know, sometimes be drawn into a bunch of annoying wars I didn't want to be part of. But also, um, eventually we managed to, like, topple one of these big um, empires and sort of get him back uh, in line so as not to be such an expansive jerk. So the, the federations allow you to have these types of interactions that maybe aren't as nuanced as what would happen in Europa Universalis, but that's also drawn from real-life history, which is 100,000 times more played out and able to be simulated than anything that happens for a gestalt intelligence in the year 3000. Yeah, I mean, they had more, uh, perhaps, inspiration to draw from, but I feel like the mid-game was not the most exciting part of the game by a long shot. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it start it, Even from a pure mechanics perspective, a lot of this is empire management and deciding where you can, you know, sort of expand to get your strategic resources you need, um, you know, look to solidify your borders, find the best choke points possible, you know, maybe find additional anomalies that'll help you uh, get to where you need from a technology perspective. But at the end of the day, you're, you're right that it's not as exciting as the first phase and it's not as crucial as the final phase. So it's just sort of maintenance and making sure you don't screw up. (laughs) But that final phase does get exciting. Yes, it does. In the end game, each uh, universe you play, each game you play, can have one of, I think it's three different end game crises, which are kind of like universe ending events or enemy forces that want to come in and fuck shit up. Yeah, so basically, once you, you hit the end game, um, several things happen. One, as, as Josh mentioned, you, you hit an end game crisis. Two, the fallen empires that have been sort of sleeping bears the entire time awaken and start to actually play. Um, and I was fully surrounding one at the time they awakened, which made for some very interesting gameplay. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Um, Three, you also have a lot of internal strife happening because you probably have a very expansive empire and it's reaching its limits in terms of your ability to administer it. I will admit that on this go around, I have not gotten to the end game. I think on one of my games, I have gotten halfway through the mid game. Uh, so if there have been new things here, which I'm sure there have been tons of, I have might have not experienced them. Oh yeah, well, you know, I think we can... You know, I said up top, I'm a tourist in this, so I'm not going to claim to be authoritative on anything. But uh, Endgame, least of all, I think I've made it to Endgame in one of my games. So, yeah, suffice it to say, uh, shit hits the fan. And, uh, you know, we don't want to spoil it for you, so that's not why we're going to go deeper in. (laughs) I do remember from back when I was first playing this, um, I remember beating one Endgame crisis and losing to another. So they are powerful things that happen. Yeah, uh, you're you're going to see numbers in terms of enemies and, and fleets that you had not seen up to that point. And you didn't know the take... numbers could go higher. <laughs> you didn't know the numbers could go that high. <laughs> yeah, so um, suffice to say, you're going to need to marshal everything in your galactic empire to confront it, or hey, hopefully you've got a federation that you can uh, take control of and um, defend the galaxy. <laughs>
by this point, we've talked about sort of how the state of play for the entire game flow goes here through your early, middle, and end game. But throughout the course of this, there's a lot of things that you're dealing with. And maybe we take some time to dive into the specific mechanics that we found interesting. And the first of those for me is your situation log, which uh, <laughs> is just like a laundry list of stuff you can do in your galaxy. Everything from anomalies to explore to uh, things you can research. You know, hey, you found these uh, space bugs. Why don't you try and make uh, make them your domestic space pets or, you know, random stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, I mean, this is where all the little storylines you find. This game not only has little stories that pop up in a info box, it also has like whole quest lines you can follow. Like, um, I remember this was earlier on, but like, uh, I think it might have been the shrine, the old gods shrine quest. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you ever came across that one, but if I'm remembering that this is the right one, um, when I got to the end of that quest. After a good long while, like uh, my entire civilization, the population transformed into like post-apocalyptic ghouls because the energy (laughs) of the old gods had wiped out over them. And like every world I was on turned into a tomb world. And (laughs) it was it was a big change. But it was like this huge quest line that you follow up and finish up. And this situation log is how you keep all that information organized. Yeah, I, I had an interesting one where I like made contact with a transdimensional being and like followed the path of a civilization that had previously made contact with them to do so. And basically, it netted me a bunch of you know research points along the way, but it also unlocked the ability for my civilization to become psionic, and they weren't initially. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was interesting. I thought that was kind of a, a cool thing. It opened up an entire new sort of tech tree for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also um, had another one <laughs> where, uh, and this was a smaller, shorter one, where I found this device that was apparently billions of years old, like basically dated back to like, you know, shortly after the Big Bang. And when I eventually like interacted with it and was able to get my scientists to find a way to activate it, uh, it released a horde of nanobots that went to a nearby planet and turned it into a completely gorgeous Gaia garden world. Uh, that was like ripe for me to settle and suddenly became my most prosperous planet. <laughs> <laughs> and then those nanobots disintegrated on site, so I couldn't harvest their technology. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you've just um, with a game as system dense as this one is, you definitely need a way to organize all the information. And I think part of learning the game is learning how where that information is stored uh, and learning to look in the situation log for these anomalies that you might not have researched yet or these quest lines um, and where to find this kind of stuff. Yeah, and there will always be player choice in terms of what you pursue here because there's always going to be more than you can possibly handle, generally speaking. Like, I don't think I was ever waiting for a new anomaly to show up. (laughs) 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 Um, And another thing about this is I also felt like there were far too many of these and also notifications. I, I kind of want to lump notifications in with the situation log because I go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and notifications appear at the top right of your screen. And, you know, they happen whenever something big happens. And Jesus Christ, they just give you a fuck ton of these. And most of them are generally pretty important. But some of them, I feel like they notify you far too often. Like every time you engage in a battle, there's like four different notifications associated with it. 
I'd, I'd say as you play more of the game, you learn to read the icons and be like, oh, this one's not important at all, or, oh, this one yeah. is important, but I'm just going to not right-click it right away to get rid of it. I'm going to pay attention to that later. Uh, also important to say, I think, is this is a real-time game, but the time controls are very much controllable. Like other Paradox games, you can pause the game at any time. You can go to normal speed. You can go to super fast speed. So usually what ha- what happens with me is whenever I get a bunch of notifications coming in, I pause it when there's an important one. I make a decision and then go back to super fast speed. Yep, I, I, I generally do the same thing. And, you know, that doesn't change my opinion that, yes, they have far too many of these generally, and I dismiss the vast majority once I realize I can. But also, hmm. they have too few in a way as well, because there's some very important things that happen that they just don't notify you about. Oh, what are you thinking? So I had a situation where I started colonizing uh, a bunch of planets in a row, and all of a sudden, I had a bunch of buildings on my home world planets that were no longer functional, tanking my economy instantly. And I never got a single notification about the mass exodus mass exodus from my core worlds that was taking place <laughs> oh did you have like some migration treaties with other neighboring civs and like all your populations left for better hills or something greener hills? something along those lines I, I honestly still don't know what happened exactly which is part of the magic of this game i guess is was just... it the nanobots did they make the planet <laughs> out of your populations yeah maybe they got recycled somehow. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's a but... paradise yeah, but <laughs> exactly. A paradise and everyone's leaving for it. So <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because like things like that would have been really nice to know, like that all of a sudden my core worlds no longer had enough people to run all of the alloy factories that I was depending on for my fleet. Well, like you said, too, uh, you didn't know what was happening. I mean, if something like that happened, then there should have been some notification, something somewhere uh, to let you know this Maybe this was going to happen, or once it had happened, what the implications were. Yeah, and, and I, I get why it may not have sprung, you know, or popped a notification, or if it did, that I may have misinterpreted it or just ignored it. Um, because, like you said, there's just far too many of these, and sometimes a, a very crucial one can fly under the radar. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, too, like, uh, if you go to that... Uh, what is it? The overview tab, too. It's not where your notifications are, but there's... Uh, you can look at your different planets there and it'll tell you like, oh, you have unemployed populations or Mm -hmm. uh, you have um, buildings are available here. So, but I don't think like if you don't have enough workers, I don't think that one shows up. Yeah, there, there, like I said, there are some situations that maybe aren't accounted for or things that can screw you over that aren't very well telegraphed and that's fine like that happens in every strategy game we've ever played Uh, a game that we are both intimately familiar with uh, and both have high praise for heroes 3 does this too you can play a game for 20 hours and suddenly realize you're fucked in the last one Um, Hmm. the last hour that is and you know that's just kind of part and parcel for games where there's incomplete information about what's going on on the game board Mm mm-hmm yeah, like the end game crisis, you don't know what you're getting into until it shows up. Yep, and you know, that's one of the things about strategy games, grand strategy games that you just have to kind of live with, right? You've got to hope that you're preparing adequately for whatever the scenario is going to throw at you. And if you don't, you know, um, I guess hopefully you learn a lesson out of it. Otherwise, <laughs> you uh, uninstall the game and say, fuck it. So you're saying <laughs> Heroes 3 is a roguelike. 
<laughs> yes, where every run is 20 hours long. <laughs> Well, you can't be much of a spacefaring civilization without doing a little bit of research. That's true. Um, you start off basically barely being able to leave your home planet, uh, exploring your local solar system, and then eventually by the end of the game you're a galaxy-spanning empire. So somewhere along the way you're learning some shit. <laughs> you learn how to make robots, you learn how to make better warships, you learn how to um, better subject your population to the proper ethical system. Yep. And um, basically, the interesting thing to me about the research that you're able to do and the technologies that you're able to um, add to your arsenal are that your ethics are what encourage them to come up. You see, in this game, you don't follow a straight-line tech tree. Uh, you can have texts that build upon each other, but the texts that appear for you to research are presented to you three at a time, and they basically come out of a deck, um, which is interesting. So you're encouraged to make a meaningful choice about how your empire expands, knowing that you may not get all of the uh, specific options that are possibly available to you. Well, I don't know. If you're talking about this game compared to other tech trees, like, I think... Um... I played a little bit of Sins of a Solar Empire, and I believe that in that game, a lot of the there's a tech tree, but a lot of texts might be missing in any given game. Like they remove some texts, so you might not you might like reach for the stars, but not get there because um, a vital tech along the way is not there. And this one, I felt it's more like, oh, here's the poo poo platter of technological options. Which one of these is the best one for you right now? I didn't feel like I was making any meaningful choices for most of the time. I feel like if you get a rare tech, um, those are pretty meaningful. You know, if it's like choosing to go down the psionics path is a pretty big choice you get to make. That is true. Those are the exceptions. Yeah, I, you're right. It, those are the exceptions. And I think the the more important thing maybe than every choice being meaningful is that you you can if you have a strong idea of what you want your empire to be from the outset you can continually pick texts that drive you towards them rather than advancing up a set tree that everyone has to follow mm -hmm. um and you're right that most of those texts at least like the common ones and the ones that show up every game um or most games rather that you don't have to do any special events to unlock are generally speaking just like percentage increases or you know uh, incremental increases to say fleet power or you know e economic power in one way or another administrative but then capacity it, new class of warships yeah right but then you you come across these certain technologies that will add an entire new dimension to what you're able to do in a gameplay uh, perspective like that psionics thing or like um, the ability to um, terraform planets and things like that and you know those are like terraforming for example is a transformative technology that everyone generally does get access to mm -hmm. but um i do like that they have a nice mix here of being able to customize your civilization with the technologies you're choosing and then also adding transformational new mechanics as a result of some of them as well i will say from a kind of maybe more multiplayer standpoint 
Um, if there is not a guaranteed tech tree where all options are available, that means that people won't be able to find the guaranteed optimal quote unquote uh, build order that where they say, oh, you should research this tech first and this tech second because that's the best way to get through the game. Uh, if you don't know what tech's going to come next, you can't necessarily make the choice you want. You can't. You don't always have that next technology available. You know what it feels a lot like to me is a deck building game. Um, you know, you don't necessarily know what you're going to get on a given run through, but given your starting conditions and what you think might come up, you can adapt your build and look for synergies that are going to make your civilization stack up better against your comp competition. Yeah, I suppose there are some synergies to be found here. Oh, for sure. There's there's definitely synergies. You know, if you continue down a certain uh, pathway or you know start stacking research bonuses based on you know one particular aspect of your civilization that then feed into another aspect which feeds back into the research capacity thing you know you can easily start to make leaps and bounds that you wouldn't have made if you just sort of chose in the instant what you needed right it, it does pay to have a sort of a, a grand strategy uh, about hmm. what you're trying to do here you know okay i got you I will say one thing I did really like about this game, which I think is kind of a interesting twist on the research mechanic, is that there are dangerous technologies that you can research. These are technologies that are fairly powerful, but they come with a cost, and not just in terms of research points. Uh, they will unlock new events, or they will possibly cause bad things to happen to your civilization and in so many other games like civ 3 or civ you know all the civilizations galactic civ sins of a solar empire like um technologies are fairly like they're beneficial to have you want them you know if you had a choice to just add another tech to your tech tree hey that's great that just saves you some time but this made some of those like a little more interesting of a choice where you could get this, but it'll add some new storytelling, some new narrative elements, and maybe not some good ones to your civilization story. Yeah, I, I really do. I like this as well. And I think it's nice to sort of have a, a nod to technology cutting both ways, which is certainly something we're seeing play out in actual real life here on planet Earth in <laughs> <the> year 2021. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, you know, obviously that's going to, going to continue to exacerbate itself. Uh, as we get more and more advanced and far-reaching into what technology can influence. Um, but there are still things in this game that are unrequited goods in terms of advancement, and they don't come out of your three major uh, technology buckets, which are engineering, physics, and uh, civics, I believe. What's the third one? Uh, physics, engineering, yes. Civics, something civics, the green one. Yeah, the green one, whatever the green one is. <laughs> At any rate, um, the the fourth pillar of this is perks, which you get after a certain amount of um, uh, another meter that builds up over the course of time. Basically, a unity is what oh, it's called. Oh, the traditions. Yes. I was thinking unity. you were thinking the civics. No, no Not yeah, the you, research, but the um, those perks. But yeah, the unity. Okay, I got yeah. you. Yeah, so, so Unity continues to build up uh, as you sort of accomplish goals for your empire as they're set out in your situation log, which we mentioned before. And uh, they help you attain these uh, perks uh, that are traditions, or rather they're called traditions. Sorry, I, I mischaracterized them. But um, you attain these traditions, and they are 
huge bonuses to your civilization. You can get ones that focus on expansion and basically reduce your empire building cost or fleet supremacy, which increase the power of your fleets. Uh, there are you know several different pathways you can take along this lines, and um, at the end of them, you can receive an ascension perk, which is basically like a super-powered tradition, which mm-hmm. is basically, we have a tradition of building Death Stars, and now we can build a Death Star. <laughs> no, and these ascension perks are rightfully so like huge game they can be game changing things like they can take you in an almost an entirely different direction it's it's nice that these are sort of all on a separate track and you don't have to have any prerequisite technologies to attain them because that would be leaving way too much up to chance given the game's sort of um deck draw um version of provisioning technologies for you to choose Uh, for a lot of them there are some that have prereqs tech wise Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're right. There, there are some that require prereqs, but it it generally is a, a measure of control that you can sort of plan for from the outset, given that it's on this separate uh, unity track rather than a uh, given technology. You know what? I'm thinking about these traditions now, and one thing I wish they changed in this game was that the ability to form a federation or join a federation is part of the diplomacy tradition. And that's not something I ever chose because I always had better options than being a friendly person. Um, (laughs) And I think if they had that federation ability as just a normal part of diplomacy, that would have increased the interestingness of diplomacy is that true i I didn't know that that was huh i must always choose diplomacy then because i've had i've had that in all the games that i've had so far yeah you've got a peacenik here okay okay here here i'm looking at it right now on the wiki page it says you can create federations with diplomacy you can join them without it oh okay yeah but that makes sense i mean if you don't have particularly friendly neighbors they're probably not going to invite you to their federation (laughs) speaking of uh, not being friendly with your neighbors, maybe we should talk a little bit about this game's war and combat mechanics, because I think this is where you're going to end up spending a good deal of your time in this game, if you're anything like me. <laughs> there is a lot of combat in this game. You want to make sure you got a good navy going, uh, keeping up to date on your military technologies to make sure you can face down your unfriendly neighbors. Make a point here. Some of your neighbors can be their life goal is to exterminate everything in the galaxy like you can't do diplomacy with them so you gotta respond in force that's true this game um does come from a place where they're not assuming that everyone has uh, you know humanistic goals that you know we are all one people and we're going to uh, rise together no 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 this aren't we're not working with all the different humans on planet earth in this game like we would be in say civ or um Europa Universalis. No, we've we've got uh, sentient AIs that are uh, wanting to control every resource in the galaxy, and mega corporations that want to extract every resource uh, within the galaxy. And that's funny. You mentioned we do have civilizations that are like we are all one people, literally. We're uh, we are the Borg. Everyone is of the same mind. 
<laughs> True. <laughs> there are, in fact, civilizations like that, but they mean it in a different way than you and I <laughs> might mean it. <laughs> um, but when yeah. these civilizations don't get along, how could that ever happen? Uh-huh. You get to the combat. Yep, and uh, the way you initiate that is by going to war. And the way you go to war, as some may recognize from your Crusader Kings or EU games, you invoke a Casus Belli. Mm-hmm. These are the reasons you're going to war. Maybe you're going to war to conquer some territory, in which case you gotta, like, fabricate some claims to that territory first. Maybe you're going to war to humiliate a rival. Maybe you're going to war because you're trying to raid another civilization's planet for slaves. Lots of reasons. Lots of reasons, and not all of them are present to you, depending on your civilization's ethics and, um, Mm. you know, uh, origin, basically. Mm -hmm. So... You you can sort of dictate the type of game you want to play from the very outset based on the type of ethics and values that you uh, choose during character or civilization creation. Um, and then once you invoke that Casus Belli, uh, an entirely new thing happens. You know, you uh, once you're at war, you are maneuvering fleets to ensure that you, as we mentioned before, are defending choke points and then expanding into your, your enemy's reach, destroying their stars star bases and claiming their systems for yours but you're not going to keep them unless you end the war with claims on those systems and you're able to increase your enemy's war fatigue to the point where they will accept your terms yeah this is um kind of a modified system from the other paradox games where you kind of have a war score uh, and this is you win battles, you take over systems that increases your war score, but also just being at war like, you know, you're the people in your civilization get sick of it. Um, they don't like it. Yeah, they don't they don't <laughs> like it. So even if uh, an enemy, if they totally defeat you and they want to take over half your territories, you can't sit around and say, no, I'm not going to accept these peace terms. Um, the game will force you to accept them. Hmm. I have a question, and I never played as a synthetic species, so I don't know this, but do synthetics get war fatigue? They do. They do. Hmm. I wonder why. Like, is is it even a thing where, like, we just can't keep up this pace? Or, hmm. Because it's not an emotional thing for a synthetic species, I'd imagine. Well, you know, if you got full AI on your synthetics, then maybe there is a little more emotion going on with it. Oh, wow. Look at you being all accepting of full AI beings. (laughs) <laughs> I think that was one of my ethics when we were playing together. No, when we, um, the second game we played together that had the dick update, I did try out a uh, machine gestalt consciousness. So we were all a bunch of robots. Uh, and during the early game, um, I didn't have to have any food going because, you know, I'm robots. I don't need any apples. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, but this yep. this kind of came up to bite me. I wasn't building the farms like I normally do because why? But then I went to war with a neighboring civilization and them being some carbon-based organic life forms. Turns out they did need some apples. And after I conquered a couple of their planets, there were kind of um, people weren't very happy with me that there wasn't any food for all of these guys. Oh, they weren't pleased with their mass starvations. (laughs) (laughs) Funnily enough, you know, this, uh, this world building, empire building is a tough thing. Yeah, especially when you completely don't understand the situations of the people that you're coming into. (laughs) Um, 
but yeah, I mean, that's a really good example of one of the interesting situations that this game can continually like serve up to the player, you know, Mm -hmm. um, you wouldn't really think of that. And it isn't even a thing that is designed into the game. It is a thing that comes up systemically, which is cool. And it's fun when you get those types of stories without even needing the author's hand to make them, uh, you know, affecting and interesting. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this game definitely throws you into some interesting situations. So with the combat, with the uh, combat in this game, talking about the Navy versus Navy stuff, not the strategic level, but the tactical level. This is another part of the game that has changed a lot between these different versions. Uh, I remember when I was first playing this game, like I might have mentioned before, I saw a lot of similarities between this game and some other Space 4X games like Galactic Civ, Sins of a Solar Empire, and whatnot. Um, And one of the things that reminded me of that was in Galactic Civilization, you Mm -hmm. had like your railguns, lasers, and missiles as a kind of rock-paper-scissors system. You would choose to research these different technologies, you'd choose to like bulk up on your missile offense and your laser defense because you knew you'd be going up against your i don't know neighboring bug people who were really strong on their uh, laser offense um and it was an important part of that game was the ship designer where you would make these choices about what components would go on there and um create a bit more of a tactical battle between the two but Giving that research and that ship designer, using that effectively was a big advantage for you as a civilization. Um, When this game first came out, I felt the same thing. It did kind of have a more rock, paper, scissors component to the combat. But I feel that since then, uh, with all these updates that have come out, they've moved away from that uh, quite a bit. Like, lasers still do more damage to, I think, the armor of a ship or maybe the shields of a ship. Um, But... It's not quite the same thing where you need that ship designer to be effective. In fact, I rarely use it compared to when I was first playing this game. Yeah, I I would definitely agree. And given that I came to this game later, I never used it. Um, They had a nice feature called Auto Best, uh, which I (laughs) literally always chose. uh, Because who better to choose what the best is than the game, which knows the game better than I will ever know the game. (laughs) So um, I let the game choose the Auto Best for my fleet every time, and it never steered me wrong. Yeah, the Auto Best is a good way to go about it. Um, Maybe there are, again, I'm not a competitive multiplayer Uh, player of this game. In fact, I'm barely a multiplayer person of this game, but maybe (laughs) there are certain tactical situations that call for a more tight controlling of your ship designs and what is composing your fleets, but I haven't run across them yet. Yeah, I I could see making like a low-rent fleet to go out and like clean up shit and then having your like you know top of the line fleet to go actually fight your wars or something like that that might be like a way to like min max your economy to the nth degree in this game using the ship designer but i never got to that point you know if i was going to make some ships i was going to make them the best ships and then they could just do whatever i need them to do i'd rather have you know ships that were overly capable than those that were underly capable mm-hmm. and the fact that they basically boil down your fleet strength to a number instead of as you said, focusing on a rock, paper, scissors aspect. Like if they had like, here's this fleet's missile strength and then here's its laser strength, then maybe I would have been keen to have more specialized fleets, but they didn't do that. So 
I just made that number as big as possible and called it a day. I feel like there might be some tactical components to the combat that you and I are missing. Like, I remember with in the ship designer, which I did play around with, you can set kind of the AI chip, the combat computer behavior chip, and it'll give you different strategies like artillery ship, blast from long range, or uh, picket ship, line up at mid-range, or interceptor, and point defense kind of thing. So there are... I think there might be a way to maximize tactical efficiency, um, but yeah, you know, numbers, higher numbers just bludgeon anything that comes nearby. Right. And and this is a grand strategy game. It's not a tactical military sim. Well, you know, com- actually, I think another interesting way to look at the combat in this game is to compare it to other Paradox games specifically Europa Universalis Crusader Kings. Uh, I haven't played it for a while, but Victoria as well. Um, The combat in this game is more complicated. Uh, Like Europa Universalis, I remember when it first came out, or when I, rather, sorry, when I first discovered it and started playing it, uh, the other grand strategy games I played before were the Total War series, which, you know, you zoom in on the battle and you direct the cavalry flank charge, and it's very, very tactical. In Europa Universalis, combat's extremely simple. There's um, fewer numbers than there are in this game. You just have, uh, like, a number of infantry and cavalry and artillery, and not saying there's no strategy and tactics to it. There, There is a good bit of strategy and tactics, but it's more of the maneuver kind of phase. Um, I feel like this game had a cool system in the combat system, but because it was all AI controlled, uh, you really didn't feel like you had much control about it, or if there was control, we didn't know about it. Like, I feel if this game was kind of like a turn-based battle system or it zoomed in farther on those battles, you made more tactical decisions, or alternatively, it was more like Europa Universalis, where it's more about, like, fighting a fleet and then running it down, maneuvering fleets to be next to each other or support each other, uh, kind of zooming out a level. Um, There wasn't really enough time. You weren't able to, like, pin down an enemy fleet with one of your weak fleets, but pin them down enough for your strong fleet to come over from three jumps over and then take out the enemy over there. There wasn't that kind of operational level of tactics. So I feel like this this game's combat was almost stuck between these two levels of uh tactical operational where they Flavor. like where they lived. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. There are there are you know sliders you can adjust in terms of tactics though that do make it interesting. Like I liked There's for sliders? the sliders. Yeah, yeah, you can you can basically like choose how soon a fleet will retreat or break up and then reform at a different system. Like if they start to take a ton of damage and you do get a ton of information during battle about how much damage your fleet is sustaining, mm-hmm. um, you can choose how soon they choose to retreat and uh, you know they consider it a, a route or whatever and then they will form up in a, a distant system and that also affects how long they spend inactive, right? Like rarely in this game will your fleets be outright destroyed if it's a close fight. They will retreat and then reform as like a shadow of their former self in a system, you know, three blocks over or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that is interesting to me because it, it does allow you to sort of use a grand strategy layer to sort of figure out how to adapt from a fight you just got your ass kicked in. Okay. And yeah, so there, 
I, I definitely agree with everything you said in the fact that like the in the system tactical battles don't give you as many choices that at least we were exposed to or, or cared to dive ourselves into, which means they weren't very accessible, right? You know, that is at least our, our perspective on this, it sounds like. But there are larger scale, you zoomed out perspective tactics that you can employ, like, um, you know, maneuvering, using those choke points, adjusting your retreat uh, threshold, things like that. And I think that that at least allows you to make some interesting choices with the combat. I know there is a retreat button that becomes accessible after, I don't know, a week or two weeks in battle, uh, which, you know, that that was uh, something I would use, but that's kind of like my knowledge from other Paradox games. It does seem like, from a combat perspective, this game sort of changed how you'd want to approach things throughout the course of its life, too, right? Like, initially, to me, it seemed like you could get by with having one big stack that just sort of went by and routed your enemies. But later on, as they changed how the combat worked, it felt to me like I needed to have a backup fleet, like always guarding the the home front, because inevitably, when I was going around you know, owning with the, doom the stack. neighboring sieve with the doom stack. Yes, that is a paradox term, I believe. Yeah, they they would reform behind my lines, and then all of a sudden, I would have a bunch of undefended civilizations that you know got their asses kicked and hollowed out. They wreck your economy, destroy all the mining stations. Yeah, right, and that that sets you back, you know, twenty years or whatever. So having a little more non doom stack troops was helpful. Okay, I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. You haven't played any other Paradox games before. Uh, for me, I have quite a bit. Um, I've, I checked my Steam hours before we did this recording. Uh, I've played 90 hours of Stellaris, so definitely you can tell this game has a recommendation for me. But compared to some of the other Paradox games, Victoria Did you 2, say 90? 90 hours. Okay, sorry. And this is over like five years here. Okay. Uh, Victoria 2, 150 hours. Crusader Kings 2, 175. EU 3, 200. Europa Universalis 4 has the record on my Steam library at 750 hours put into it. Oh my god. <laughs> I know, I know. It's crazy, crazy. But uh so You know, it's funny. I, I th- that is the record. That is the game that I, you know, that people I'm aware of playing just a shit ton of that always has the highest number of hours. So (laughs) there's something with that game for sure. It does good things. And you know, I'm going to run through some of these things right now. Some, some of the things I think that the other paradox titles did better than Stellaris. Are we, are we doing a top five paradox? (laughs) 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 Call it, call it missed opportunities over here. I think to me, when you say paradox, one of the things I think of most is anti-blobbing mechanics. These are things that prevent you from becoming a huge world-spanning empire or galaxy-spanning empire. Uh, like Europa Universalis, uh, they have co- coalitions. You could be France raffle-stomping your you know, balkanized neighbors at the beginning, but then everybody gets angry at you because they see what you're doing and they don't want you to stop it. So you're you go at, uh, they form a coalition against you and now you're in a war against half of Europe which you can't win. Um, yep. 
people so, don't like empires. Yeah, they, they don't like it. So it's like a way to, even when you get big, uh, it's a way for like those smaller civilizations to stop you from just steamrolling through everything. Or Crusader Kings 2, you know, your king dies, you have two heirs, well now the kingdom gets chopped in half, and you have half of what you had before. So it's like these ways that Paradox games keep things interesting in the mid-game through not um, allowing you to just blob and become a larger empire. Yeah, in in regards to the whole anti-blobbing thing, I I totally understand that because I even remember this from Civilization, right? In the earlier Civ games, you could literally just stack up, you know, a hundred troops on a single hex and, you know, they're next to the biggest city of the enemy and all of a sudden you would have an, an endless number of troops you could throw at them all at once. You know, you declare war and then all of a sudden there's you know, a hundred knights standing outside their door. Um, they fixed this in later games where they basically did not allow stacking on uh, given um, given hexes, but then had to completely rework the combat techs to allow that to work. You know, the stats of every unit changed a ton, and it seems to me that this is a much more interesting and nuanced way to go about it. It made you care a lot more about the, the unit, the individual units that you were putting out in the field. It made you, uh, you know, give a shit if they actually died rather than sort of mass producing things stacking them up in a big column and then throwing them at the enemy and you know hoping your economy would basically win the game for you um the focus on tactics over economy even when your economy is superior is a thing that i think is an unrequited good in the strategic space right because there's tons of stories throughout history of um combatants with inferior size and economies winning key battles and holding off forces based on uh, strong strategic decisions and i think the ability of these paradox games and civilization to evolve and accommodate that type of view is um, definitely an improvement as we've advanced uh, from a game design perspective yeah I, I agree with that like finding um maybe what the weaknesses were in a prior work and correcting those uh, or making things more interesting, making it more of a choice, making it less of a steamroll. Yep, that's always a good thing. You know, um, rarely in history are there steamrolls. Um, <laughs> there's always, and even if there are steamrolls, like the fallout from the steamroll should be severe, right? Like, um, so that to me is is a thing that you know, as games continue to add nuance, um, I like to see in the mechanics, uh, especially from these strategic games. I think one of the worst things about a steamroll kind of game is that it doesn't become... There's fewer interesting choices in a steamroller game. Like, if you're just rolling over planet after planet or country after country, then there's not really anything that makes you pause and consider your options. You're just kind of on the momentum streak. And like the other Paradox games, they'd have ways to mitigate this. Like um, I'm thinking in Europa Universalis, there's trade as a big system. There's trade in this game, but it wasn't something where you were like competing with other empires for the best trade routes in far-flung areas of space. Uh, it was just kind of like a very localized, very in-your-own-empire sort of thing. Or like... Um, the big events that would happen like uh in europa universalis i've played it so much you know you get the discovery of the americas going on you get the hundred years war you get the um 
Thirty Years' War with the like Protestants and the Catholics all lining up on one side or the other. Maybe the Holy Ro Roman Empire forms or it dissolves during the game. Like there are these big, world-changing kind of events that can happen in that game and throw you off your game over here. There were a couple of those events that happened in uh, Stellaris. Like I had one of the Barbarian planetary systems go on the warpath and start trying to conquer half the galaxy. That was fun, but that happened like once in a hundred years in my game. So there was a lot of like downtime in between there. And I think these other Paradox games do a better job of keeping that mid-game rife with interesting choices. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And and I think they've added a lot of these throughout the, the time that the game is spent under development, which is basically the last five years <laughs> and very much agreed so, yeah and and to that end maybe we talk about some of the the big additions that they've had you know whether it be free or paid um paradox always supports their games in a big way you know they add uh, additional content packs in this game they've done additional civilizations additional mechanics uh, some of the big ones like the utopias upgrade the federations upgrade which i talked about the nemesis upgrade which we talked about at the top like these are big large mechanical updates but then they often pair them with big free updates you know the update to 3.0 for example even if you just have base stellaris changed a shit ton about the game mm-hmm yeah, they keep the game very interesting when you're coming back. Um, what I generally recommend with a Paradox kind of game is that if you like the base game um, and you've played that a couple of times and you're like, I'd like a different flavor of this uh, base game, then you find out like what's the most highly recommended DLC. You download that and that gives you like the same game you love, but now with extra options, extra systems. And I think it's great that they also, um, when they release this DLC, they also do those free updates too for everyone. Mm, yep, I agree. The nice thing, uh, you know, it, it's sort of a rising tide lifts all boats situation where the game is continuing to be successful. It's drawing players back in. They're buying DLC, reinvesting in the game, so to speak. And then that translates not only to more DLCs in the future, but also to base level upgrades that anyone with any level of DLC will reap the benefits of. Mm -hmm. And it sort of helps the audience self-select for how involved they want to be in the game, but still reap the benefits if they're maybe not able to support <laughs> the developer economically to the extent of buying every single DLC pack the day it's released. No, I think it's a good monetization model for games, you know? like Absolutely. If you like this game, here's more of that game. But it's also like if you don't pay that you still get to see some updates to the game and some new systems going on absolutely and it helps that these games are incredibly generous just from the base 1.0 right like you're never going to be whining about lack of content uh when you buy a paradox game even at its base unless you're you know maybe a, a super fan who's dedicated to playing 100 50 plus hours <laughs> but um, is that and, 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 is that the line for super fans <laughs> I, I don't know and, and to be fair that might be their core audience it, it probably is now that i'm thinking about it but what i'm saying is these games are very generous off the bat and then they continue to uh support them and you know i think from an economic perspective they have a pretty good way of doing it you know they're um they're allowing people to choose their level of investment. They're continuing to support regardless of whether you're giving them money or not. It's all in all, I think it works out quite well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, a good way to 
allow players to continue to support the development of the games they love. I do remember, uh, I'm sure Stellaris has this too, but um, Europa Universalis, the game that I've been very much into before, has a bunch of really fun achievements. And it'll be things like, um, there'll be some standard things like conquer the world as uh, this tiny island off of Japan, um, which are hard things to do. But there'll also be things like be Switzerland and have a hundred different provinces under your control without any that touch an ocean because, you know, Switzerland's supposed to be landlocked. Or there'll be things like Ireland, conquer Britain, put the uh, shoe on the other foot, you know? Uh, So there's even ones that um, I really like that in that game because it gave you like these fun goals to go with. And maybe I should check out what they got for Stellaris because it was like these goals that were outside the idea of just like conquer everything. Yeah. I I like when a game does that and with its um, achievements, it sort of encourages you to play in a way that you would not initially think of. And I think roguelikes do a really good job of this, but now that I'm thinking about it, strategy games also do a really good job of this. It might just take you an additional 20 hours to achieve that (laughs) that goal (laughs) or more. So with that, why don't we summarize our thoughts on Stellaris, the entire galaxy of possibilities, with a three-word review. My three-word review is a galactic paradox. At first, everything is overwhelming. I have no idea what these resources are for, or what to research, or what to do, and all of a sudden, it starts to crystallize, and I realize, oh shit, I need to start over. And then I play a second game with a rudimentary understanding of what's going on, and that gets me to the point where I realize mid-game that I've also been playing this game all wrong. I clear the board and start game number three. And this, I think, is where my natural ability to discern the optimal strategy starts to plateau, and it becomes more of a situational adaptation thing for me. And to me, this is also where the fun begins, but at the same time, I've already seen some of the things that make Stellaris most intriguing to me, and... I've also seen them three times in a row at this point. The game was unable to pair its biggest strength, the novelty of what the universe throws at you, with the joy of a game well executed. And to me, this is the paradox of this paradox game. I still highly recommend it, but a bit more so if you're a seasoned paradox game player. Uh, Still a thumbs up, but you might get more out of it if you know what you're going into. Now, this game is a thumbs up for me. I would definitely recommend it. Like I said, I've played 90 hours of this. And, um, you know, that first time you're exploring that game and you're getting all this fun narrative and all these cool new quests to do, that exploration, it's a kind of a magical moment. This game is worth playing it just for that. But this game peters off in the mid-game. My three-word review for this game is Deep Space Time Sync. This game has enough interesting things going on with it to keep you just keep on playing. Uh, But after that magical beginning where you're exploring the new world, you're exploring the systems around you, and you're exploring the new game and seeing everything that's going on there, you reach the middle game and things just kind of slog down. After you've put enough time into this game, I feel like the mid-game does not sustain itself 
the same level that other Paradox games do. Once you get to the point where you understand the systems and you're reacting to the events that happen, the events just don't happen often enough in the mid-game. Uh, the end game can be cool when you get to it, but this game it did not sustain its interest for me often enough that I kind of see this as one of the weaker Paradox titles. Uh, the systems in it are strong, but it just doesn't have that whole start to finish kind of game design that the other ones do. So for me, this game is a deep space time sink. <laughs> I love that deep space time sink <laughs> in another uh, pronunciation. That's funny. <laughs> but we're limited to three words, so. I like it. Um, so with that, I want to thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at pixelplaypod. And for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. Take care and keep on shooting for the stars. One thing that we didn't mention during the podcast, this game has amazing loading screens. Yeah, the concept art. Um, you know, you, you're never really seeing these buildings or structures or fleets or events in art during the game, for the most part. But the loading screens just sort of give this huge amount of flavor to all of the events that you're um, seeing like when you're saying you're exploring an alien archive and the loading screen as you're loading up your game is this incredible picture of uh, like an alien pyramidal structure with light emanating from a doorway. It just sets the whole mood of what you're about to start doing. You know, I think these loading screens actually do a lot of heavy lifting. Like in terms of world building, uh, they say a picture is worth a thousand words, of course. And a lot of these loading screens just suggest to you what's going on at that kind of very personal level, which you don't see in the game. You're only seeing things at the planetary level. Yeah, I agree. It, it sort of, it gives, it, it personalizes some of the, you know, galactic scale events. Like it turns galactic administrator view into a Star Wars movie view, you know? Like all of a sudden you can imagine yourself as the scientist on that uh, science vessel, uh, investigating this anomaly mm -hmm. yeah it does a great job and um my computer's a little slower than some other computers so i got to see extra loading <laughs> screens which this hey. is one of the games i was not sad about that for i i wouldn't be either they also play the game's excellent music over it too um you know i've played a lot of i haven't played a lot of but i've played several um 4x games and they all have pretty good music there's you know generally speaking these are like games that will put you in a mood to you know continue to administer your empire but i think this game maybe punched a little above its weight class in the music department as well there's some very cool tracks and they have interesting sea changes usually uh throughout their songs which go from sort of placid to 
then all of a sudden driving and i like that good soundtrack in this game too uh i feel like paradox has strong soundtrack they're very orchestral they're very symphonic a lot of times but definitely on point Did you have any particular DLCs or add-ons or updates that you appreciated or noticed between, you know, in the five years that you've been playing this game? (laughs) Well, as a point in fact, until we started playing this uh, game together, I just had the base version. Uh, So there were a lot of different things I've noticed along the way, changes to combat, uh, planet building. Uh, It used to be like you'd build planets on a grid, like you'd have 16 squares or 25 squares and buildings would affect the things next to them. I think this way is a little more streamlined and it works okay, but it feels feels a little more like you're playing a spreadsheet a little bit, like you don't have these unique setups you used to have on the different planets. You're just building this building that gives you 10% bonus to resources instead of being like, this building will double any mineral outputs buildings that are next to it. Uh, so it's it's different in how you're setting up the planets. I don't think it's, you know, that much better or worse, but it's definitely been interesting checking out the new DLCs and seeing them all at once, all these new systems you can do, uh, play with and tinker with. Yeah, absolutely. I don't I don't have much to contribute here from a historical perspective, but I can't say that Federations had a huge impact on how I played the game. And, I, you know, I never played the game without them, but I also can't really imagine the game without them. Uh, despite the fact that Josh has never played really with them, to my knowledge. <laughs> and I know I'm so. complaining about the diplomacy being a little weaker, but I suppose part of that is self-selection. <laughs> Fair point. But, yeah, I, I don't know. These games can sort of cater themselves to how the players want to play them. That's a fine a fine situation to be in. Like, you know, maybe, um, Josh, you can play a pacifist bird communist civilization next time around like me and see how that goes for you. 